Good morning. It's fourth Sunday morning of the season of Advent. We are almost to Christmas. I wanted to say thank you to the uh, liturgical arts team for this, the way that this installation has changed and developed every week. Um, it's been cool to watch. It's so simple, but I've really enjoyed it, uh, and that could definitely not come out of my brain, so I'm glad it came out of theirs for all of our benefit. Again, we'll be uh, in several different scriptures this morning. The first will be in Isaiah chapter 7, and you'll hear that again when we light the Advent candle, and they'll be in Romans 1 and Matthew 1. Isaiah 7, starting, where did I tell you to start? 10? Okay, that's good. That's where I was going to start. Good. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, then, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the, the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Romans chapter 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to the saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, 
but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks to us. The word spoken by the prophets, carried along by the Holy Spirit to speak a word that is true and is still true and is still speaking. And God, we pray that our ears would be open to the words of the prophets, to the words of your gospel, and our hearts would be soft. And Father, we pray in this Advent season that we would be shaped to be a people who are looking to you in expectation that your kingdom would come in fullness and in power. Help us to be a people who wait well, Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> this, uh, this passage in Isaiah chapter 7 is probably relatively familiar to you if you've been in church before at Christmas time. Um, in it, Isaiah the prophet stands before the king of Judah and tells him to ask for a sign. And Ahaz uh, has this appearance of religious devotion and says, I would never put God to the test. Even though the prophet of God is telling him to ask for a sign, uh, he takes upon himself this it's a pretense that he's going to be somebody, I would never do this. And Isaiah tells him, you're obnoxious. That's basically what he's saying. You, you, would, you, would, you would be fine making the people weary, but you're going to weary God also. Fine, I'll give you the sign. And he tells him this thing that, that later Matthew will pick up. And he says, here's the sign. A virgin will conceive, and you'll name him. You'll be known as Emmanuel. And and he says, this, this child, Emmanuel, will be a sign that before even they come to fruition, this thing is going to happen in Israel. And Matthew writes his gospel long after this prophecy, well after. And Matthew will pick up this prophecy in a way that, that for Israelites reading him would have quite possibly be unexpected and unforeseen. Because the way the prophecy works in Isaiah 7 and then Isaiah chapter 8, it seems like Israel has known who that child was. It's very easy. The natural reading, uh, if you're not thinking about the existence of the book of Matthew or the story of Jesus, it's very natural to read Isaiah chapter 7 and hear it as a prophecy of a kid who would be born. Because Isaiah doesn't specify um, that the person who delivers the child will be a virgin as she gives birth, because that's not the way that they would expect that to be fulfilled. And in Isaiah chapter 8, there's a girl, a young woman, who gets married. She has a baby. And the prophecy is echoed in 8 that was given in 7. So it's very natural as an Israelite to say, well, in Isaiah 7, he prophesied this. In Isaiah chapter 8, this kid, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, if you're wondering, is delivered, and the same signs of, the, of Emmanuel is talked about with Meher Shalal Hashbaz, and boom, prophecy fulfilled. But Matthew says otherwise. Not to say that the kid who comes in Isaiah chapter 8 is not prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, but he says the words of the prophet are fulfilled. 
And this is often the way that the Christians will read the Old Testament prophecies is that the prophets may have been speaking more directly about this thing, but the thing that's behind it and greater and bigger is the thing that fills up the meaning of the prophecy. So Isaiah may have been thinking about or prophesying towards this kid, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. God has a, a, a fullness of meaning that is only fully realized in the story of Jesus. Because, of course, Matthew tells his story, and when Joseph hears the story, the words are much clearer. The woman will conceive while being a virgin, which surprises Joseph, her husband, or betrothed at the point of hearing the dream. Joseph is not prepared for the woman that he is engaged to, to be pregnant. And he is going to do what is most honorable to him, to quietly put her aside and let her deal with this on her, on her own. And the, the word he hears from the angel is that, no, 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 all is going to plan. Maybe not your plan, Joseph. Maybe this is not what you expected. But this is going along with the plan of God, that the Holy Spirit has miraculously birthed something in the womb of Mary that is according to the promise of God. And in all three of these passages that we hear, there is this connection to David that is not incidental or unimportant. It is really important to hear that Paul, Matthew, Isaiah, they are very concerned with this line of David. By the time Jesus is born in the region, there is no state of Israel. It's gone. It's a dominion of Rome. Nobody is sitting on David's throne. Nobody. Because David's throne has been crushed under the heel of several successive empires. But Israel has within its collective memory that the seat of David, the throne of David, is incredibly important for the whole fate of the nation of Israel. Behind it is not just the the political power that is supposed to be fulfilled in David's throne, but is in this covenant given to the, the throne of David, David's family and his descendants. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, There's this story. David um, has, everything has gone well for him. Everything has gone right, basically. He has taken the city of Jerusalem. He has made it his capital. He has brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And he has said to God, look, I have a nice palace. You should have a nice palace. I'd like to build a temple for you. And God's first response is, I'm fine. I've always been fine. The tabernacle was fine. I don't need that from you. But then he goes back and says, fine, through the prophet Nathan, he says, David, I I will allow a a temple to be built for me, but you won't be allowed to build it because your hands are too bloody. You're a man of war and you're not allowed to build the temple. However, I will let your son build it. And in that discourse, God elaborates And doesn't just say, I'll let you build a temple, but he gives this much bigger promise that David did not anticipate. This is 2 Samuel 7, uh, verse 12. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He then shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. These are the words of the covenant that God makes with the home of David, that there will be this special relationship between his household, the household of God, and the household of David, and that somehow they will have an everlasting throne, which as soon as you start reading from David on, it seems that this is impossible because Solomon is the first descendant of David and Solomon messes everything up almost immediately. He asks the right things of God. He builds the temple and then his life goes off a cliff. He has a thousand wives. He worships their gods. And by the time Solomon exits the story, the kingdom is rent in half There's a northern tribe and a a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and everything is in disarray. The whole history of Israel is that, yes, a descendant of David sits on the throne, but it's all basically a much diminished throne, and they're mostly incompetent. They're fallible. They're wicked men by and large. And the throne dissolves. It wastes away. And who can foresee how the covenant-making God can ever fulfill his promise to David? And the people of Israel, as Matthew is writing his gospel, are sitting under the thumb of the Roman Empire, and they have this distant collective memory of God's promise to David's family. And the question that is in their hearts is, how? Could this ever be possible? And so when they hear the words of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, as quoted in the Gospel of Matthew, they hear this allusion to the son of David. And the hopes of this whole covenantal promise are being pushed into this story of a boy somehow conceived outside the normal course of things and born in a place in a time that is unforeseen and unexpected. What the gospel writers are pushing us to see is that Jesus, who will grow up in Nazareth, Jesus born in Bethlehem, is somehow the carrier and the recipient of all of the hopes of David's family to sit on the throne, to establish Israel, to protect her forever. What the gospel writers will ultimately say is that 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 promise where it's said that in the Davidic covenant where when, when he sins, he'll be disciplined with the rod of men, with the stripes of men. What they'll say is that Jesus, as the fullest fulfillment of the descendant of David, actually takes up not his own sins, but the sins of his people. 
Because in Matthew chapter 1, that's exactly what's told to Joseph and his family, that the one who will be born from Mary will save the people from their sins. And they pull this name from Israel's past to put in their minds the image of what this one will do. And they name him Yeshua. In the Old Testament, that name is Joshua. In the Hebrew-speaking part of the Bible, and we translate that name into Jesus in the Greek-speaking part of the Bible. But Jesus' own name has the imagery of Joshua delivering the people into the promise of Israel, establishing for them a safe place, miraculously defeating the enemies of God. So Jesus' whole story is framed around the covenantal promises, the triumph of God for the people of Israel on behalf of Israel. And Paul will point back to all of it in saying, this son of David, he is established as the ruler. What he says is the Lord. Not, not Caesar, not the emperor of Rome, not any other king, but Jesus is the Lord over everything established and proven by his death and his resurrection. That when Jesus is resurrected from the dead by the Spirit, he is enthroned in power forever. What Paul says to the people of Rome is, the apostles, the church, is then invited to the obedience of faith. And that, just as the church in Rome heard that, that is where we are in this Advent season. We are invited into the obedience of faith this Advent season because we don't see with our eyes what the Gospels, what Paul is telling us is true, that God is with us. The whole fullness of Isaiah's promise and of what Matthew is saying is that God is with us. And what the church confesses is what we confess in faith. That though we don't see it with our eyes, we cannot point to it with our hands, it is in fact true. That Jesus actually is the resurrected Lord. He actually is the Son of David who is currently seated on the throne. We confess it in faith. We confess it in trust. And we confess it in the middle of a conflicted world still pressed in by the enemies of this world. In the Advent, in Advent we are looking forward and telling the truth about where we are right now. We still see the effects of sin and darkness and death. It still seems like the enemies of God are still encamped all around us. And it is hard. It is hard to be a person of faith. Often we hear Paul's instruction that what we're commanded in is the obedience of faith. And we hear that and we say, I've just got to be certain. I've got to be, I, this is my obedience to God. I've got to feel certain. We've talked about this before, but that is not the essence of, of biblical faith, is absolute certainty at all times. The essence of biblical faith is trust. I don't feel certain at all times. But what I do is I trust 
that Jesus actually is at work in the world and that he is not finished in the world. And that ultimately that name that he carries, Emmanuel, is both true now and will one day be even more true. This is our great Advent hope. We are caught in the middle of the story and there is yet one more movement in this piece of music when everything will come to fulfillment and Jesus will take his throne in power. So then we are left with the why. Why are we caught in the in-between of now? Why are we caught in between the first coming of Jesus and his second coming? Why is it like this when it feels like it should be something else? Uh, This past week, um, as I was thinking about these things, I was watching um, in horror uh, this story that was happening at this church in California, Bethel, um, who's famous for a lot of reasons. A little girl died suddenly, inexplicably, who was two years old, which is horrific and tragic, period. And this church uh, is fully comfortable praying for miracles, seeing miracles, and that's great. But the parents and people, the friends of this little girl, decided they were going to pray for resurrection. Their body of the little girl was left in the morgue for five or six days as they held these special services to ask seemingly demand that God would be resurrected. And they said, we're doing this in faith that God is a God of resurrection. As a pastor, I was deeply angry at the pastors of that church who would so missteward their people that way. And I was heartbroken for these parents because I cannot imagine the pain of the thought of trying to bury your child compounded by the pain of living all of this out in public like this. I I believe in miracles. I, I have been the recipient of sudden miraculous healing. I'm comfortable praying and asking God for those things. But the fundamental error I think that they made is the missing of what Advent is about which is the confession that the kingdom is not fully here. They are right. One day, that little girl will be resurrected. That is Christian hope. But we do not assume or dare to say on behalf of God that that day is today. And to just throw that around is an incredibly destructive mistake. The kingdom is yet in some way still hidden. It is not fully in power. And on behalf of that girl's parents and with every other person who has suffered tragedy, why 
Why is this still the nature of the kingdom? I was reading um, this book uh, for class by, by a man named Leslie Newbegin. He's a uh, missionary in India and then became, uh, this past century, one of, one of probably the great thinkers about mission and what the church is supposed to do in culture. And he talks about the hidden nature of the kingdom. And he says, The hiddenness is what makes possible the conversion of the nations. The unveiling of the glory of God's kingdom and all its terrible majesty could leave no further room for the free acceptance in faith which Jesus called for. Only when the glory was veiled in the lowliness of his incarnation could it call out freely given repentance and faith. When the church tries to embody the rule of God in the forms of earthly power, it may achieve that power, but is no longer a sign of the kingdom. But when it goes the way the master went, unmasking and challenging the powers of darkness and bearing in its own life the cost of their onslaught, then there are given to the church signs of the kingdom, powers of healing and blessing, which to eyes of faith are recognizable as true signs that Jesus reigns. The life of the church now is that we are walking in the hidden, lowly ways of our Maker. And we are living in the front lines of the conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And every moment that we ache, and every moment that we suffer, every moment that we, like Israel, would say, when will the throne of David be rightly and fully filled? We will come into suffering. We will come into suffering. Just as Jesus came into suffering. And to think that suffering should be gone now because Jesus has come is to misunderstand that God is still yet in His mercy veiling His terrible majesty so that people might still come to Him in the obedience of faith. In other words, God delays and delays and delays because He is a God of mercy whose mercy is yet bigger than mine. Because it was up to me, this would be over. There'd be more, no more death. There'd be no more suffering. All of the dead who I've loved in Christ would be resurrected, and I would be fine and happy because my mercy extends to me. But God in His mercy says the church will still bear up in sorrow so that God might yet keep the doors open to men as many as possible. And my life and yours is to carry on in this way. See, God is still the God who does unexpected, surprising, hidden, and lowly things so that many may come to see Him and to trust Him. And we don't live in a day and in a kingdom where we have to pretend that everything is certain and squared away and we're all all right with it. We don't have to either try to believe that all of our dead need not die. We instead bury our dead. And we weep at 
at the edge of their grave. And we curse death. And we praise Jesus. And we confess in faith that even here at the edge of the grave, He is the Son of David. He is Emmanuel. And His throne will come in power. That death may not have the last word over His people and over His creation. And we look beyond the grave. We look to the other side of history, to the moment when the fulfillment of this title, Emmanuel, will be known in fullness. Now we say in faith and even experience, God is with us. He is with us. But the fulfillment of the story is at the end of the Bible when God will dwell with His people. And there will be no more night because they shall live in the light of His face. And there will be no more death or sorrow or suffering and every tear will be wiped from their eye. And the river of life flows in their midst and the healing of the nations is available to all. And Jesus the great Redeemer and Rescuer will dwell with His people forever. This Advent season, my invitation to you, the great invitation of Scripture, is to set your hearts on what will last forever. Is to look towards the throne of David and see that Jesus sits there now, but there is a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and He will be unveiled in His majesty and every sorrow that you carry in following Him will be consoled and healed in His hands. Every objection that you have against the way that the world is, every score that you've counted against the horrible nature of evil and suffering and sin, He will overturn. Every hope that has been broken, every sin that you have wrestled against day after day after day, He will put His foot on and crush forever. We are not making it to Christmas so that we can open up our presents. We are coming to Christmas to feast on those days and be reminded that God has come to be with His people and He will yet again come to be with His people forever. People of God, if you are, are suffering this season, you are not alone. You are following in the footsteps of your Master. And you need not suffer alone because people in this room will suffer with you. And your suffering has an end date. It will not be forever. If you suffer because of your loneliness or broken relationship or physical pain or loss, you will not suffer forever. Your master will not let that be the end of your story. People of God, if you are living a good life right now, if you are full of holiday joy and you can barely remember any sorrow, there is for you a joy 
that will transcend this moment. And your joy does not hinge upon days and seasons like this, but instead endures when surely the seasons turn and you find yourself in a different phase of life. And as great as your joy may be right now, do not be deceived. Your joy in Jesus is yet better. As good as things are following and walking with Jesus now, the promise for us, the people of God, is there is yet more. There is yet better. He is the risen Lord, the ascended Lord, and He will be enthroned in His kingdom with His people forever. Emmanuel, God with us always. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, in your life, in your death, your resurrection and ascension, you've announced your triumph. And we know, Lord God, that you call us to the obedience of faith. We confess to you that oftentimes faith feels like a fragile thing in our hands. We do not live up to it. We do not live up to what we should be. But we are so grateful that the story hinges on you. That you are the great pivot point of history. That you are the master. You are the king who hides the full majesty of your kingdom because of your mercy. And we are recipients of that mercy. Father, help us to take heart. You said that in this world we would have troubles, but that you have overcome the world. Help us to see the great history of the faithfulness of the real and true Son of David. Help us to see and remember that you are the covenant-keeping God who comes into the story in unexpected and surprising ways, and that you will be with us now and forever. We are so grateful for you being with us, Lord Jesus, and we pray with the, with the church through all of history and say, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, that we may see you with our eyes and live in David's city, in the new Jerusalem, in light of your face. May it come quickly, Lord Jesus, and help us to trust you until it does. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.